everyone, and thank you for joining me for today's podcast. Culling is defined as the killing of animals in order to reduce population numbers. Now, culls can happen for a variety of reasons, including health and disease control and prevention, or just to protect other species. However, the ethics make this subject a strongly polarising one. And whilst culling in some cases may be necessary, it can be quite unclear whether culling should actually take place, as there can be unforeseen consequences. There are three main reasons why animals may be culled, but before we get into that, I'd like to take a moment just to thank my upper sixth biologist, Alice, for conducting the research and providing the content for me to use for this particular podcast. So let's get into it. The three reasons why animals may be culled. Well, the first reason is to prevent a sort of out of control uh, species causing harm or suffering to other animals of the same or different species with resulting environmental impacts. The second is to prevent disease and health issues in livestock or wildlife. And the third is to prevent harm to human health. Now, because each situation is different, we need to examine the arguments and assess the effects of culling and identify really a framework for answering the question of whether we should ever cull animals. And if so, when is it the appropriate response? Let's talk about the threat from out-of-control species. So the first reason I gave. Well, the first issue is whether out-of-control species should be called to limit their environmental impact and influence on biodiversity. And in this podcast, I'll examine uh, this idea using Australia as an example, as it has the highest rate of mammalian extinction globally. And that's according to Hunt's research from 2020. A culling programme there aims to reduce the numbers of dingoes and wild dogs to limit the threat they pose to livestock and the diversity of local, predominantly mammalian, endangered species which they hunt. Killing wild dogs has been encouraged in Australia since about, about 2014 and the National Wild Dog Action Plan has found that wild dogs called agricultural, rather, agricultural losses of approximately 89 million dollars a year australian dollars a year there is a common argument that culling is actually beneficial to the integrity of the dingo species as killing feral dogs prevents crossbreeding and dilution of the dingo gene pool which is important because dingoes as a pure species are endangered however a recent study showed that in wild dog culling the majority had entirely or mostly dingo dna meaning that the stability of the pure dingo population is therefore threatened. Wild dogs are often called using aerial baiting, where poisoned meat is dropped from helicopters. However, that approach means that the poison is ingested by other animals, including pure dingoes, and baiting even occurs in protected areas such as national parks. Culling predators such as dingoes is difficult, as we have a limited ability to track the populations and differentiate between the pure dingoes and the hybrid feral dogs. It's hard for farmers to appreciate the overall decline of dingoes when they still regularly come into contact with wild dogs. The Australian Bushfire Recovery Programme from the fires of January 2020 includes money from, or money for rather, culling of predators including dingoes, uh, feral cats and even foxes. Now, after the bushfires, these predators 
are trying to pose a greater threat to other native species by taking advantage of that lack of shrubbery in areas that have been burnt. But a study found that larger dingo populations benefited rather the ecosystem in those areas as they were avoided by the feral cats and the foxes. The dingoes hunt the other predators, meaning fewer small mammals were killed overall. The dingoes also used the burnt areas to hunt kangaroo more efficiently, which has a positive impact by limiting the kangaroo population, which also faces culling to reduce numbers. And that's preventing them from competing with cattle for grass and even benefiting the soil. So without dingoes, it seems clear that the delicate balance of the food chain and the stability of the ecosystem is overall threatened. Wild cats are also called in Australia to protect native species, although this is often more contentious due to their popularity. But a recent cull of cats in Tasmania, in fact, led to a growth in cat populations of up to 211%. That's according to Klein's research back in 2016, as the culling meant more natural resources for the surviving cats and a resulting boost in the reproduction rates, as well as just simply more cats moving into the area. That effect can also be seen with the dingoes. Often more cattle are attacked after culling as young lone male wild dogs gain entry to areas usually controlled by the more docile families. There have been calls for more non-lethal solutions to be implemented, such as contraceptives, or methods such as replanting grasses to make it harder for the predators to hunt the small mammalian species. These techniques are often far more practical and effective at actually reducing predator populations and environmental impact and also just more ethical. But the problem is it can be expensive and it's an unsuitable technique for animals that are hard to trap or spread over a large area. Another method may be using other animals to protect livestock such as the uh, Maremma dogs. Rather than culling dingoes and feral cats in Australia, we should be actually aiming really to coexist alongside them. And I want to talk about the threats to livestock health. And let's start with foot and mouth disease as an example. Well, culling also occurs when there's a major threat to the health of livestock. Now, during the UK foot and mouth epidemic of 2001, so going back 20 years here, culling played a major part in the response. This highly contagious disease resulted in a staggering 10 million sheep, cattle and pigs being killed in the nine months of the epidemic. The disease is not usually fatal to livestock, but it causes symptoms such as fever, uh, blisters and lameness, which obviously makes the animals unfit for human consumption. The disease is not a threat to human health, but could be spread by them having contact with an infected animal. There were around 2,000 cases of foot and mouth disease, but because it's so infectious, the primary solution was just to cull all animals on both the infected farm and also all neighbouring farms, and then to burn the corpses. Exclusion zones were implemented in some areas, limiting travel and the countryside access. The cost in agriculture and tourism losses to the country was estimated around £8 billion. Now, given those costs, many people argued rightly that the extensive culling was fully justified and even that the response was not fast or even severe enough. 
One study, in fact, found that by modelling the epidemic with different culling responses, foot and mouth disease could have been brought about under control much faster if a harsher culling policy had been introduced from the very start. The study also proved that if neighbouring but uninfected farms had not been forced to cull, the number of cases would have doubled by the July and the epidemic would have become completely uncontrollable. A separate study, however, suggested that vaccination instead might have helped by showing that vaccination early on in the epidemic would have reduced the overall spread significantly. There are certain problems, though, to using a vaccine. There are multiple different strains of the virus, each requiring a specific vaccine strain. Vaccinated meat is prohibited from being sold for human consumption, rendering the livestock totally worthless. However, if another outbreak were to occur, the first priority should be to vaccinate livestock to prevent spread, rather than focus only on culling the infected animals. And a clear vaccination policy is needed to limit future culling. There have been many changes to farming with a view to preventing future epidemics. Disease monitoring has increased and livestock and meat are now traced far more effectively than they used to be. A prompt response to a case in the UK back in 2007 meant the situation was dealt with before it became a full-blown outbreak, showing that large levels of culling should now be avoided in such situations. Culling of wild species to protect livestock also takes place, and one example of this in the UK is the culling of badgers to prevent them spreading bovine tuberculosis to cattle. So let's talk about bovine TB now. Bovine TB is a bacterial infection transmitted through airborne droplets or contact with infected cattle or wildlife, such as badgers. Humans may develop the disease through drinking infected milk, although cases are rare since the introduction of pasteurisation. Bovine rather, apologies, TB has actually no cure, and cattle who contract it have to be culled with over 30,000 cattle being killed annually at a cost of around 150 million a year in compensation to farmers. Badgers have been culled in the UK since, I think, about, I think it was early 1970s. I want to say 1975, in fact. And intensive culling is part of a government plan to eradicate bovine TB from the country by 2038. A strategy for eradicating bovine TB is necessary, irrespective of the badger culling debate, due to the issues of the risk to human and livestock health, and just quite simply the cost to the economy. Analysis into the numbers of bovine TB cases have found that culling of badgers has a correlation with lower cases of the disease in cattle, with a reduction of 66 and 37% in two areas analysed uh, back in 2020 by DEFRA. Many farmers believe that culling badgers, badgers rather, reduce the risk of bovine TB transmission to their herds and so participate or just simply endorse badger culling despite the ethical dilemma. It is argued though that culling badgers is totally ineffective and it may just in some cases lead to an increase in bovine TB cases in cattle. One study showed that after badger culling, 
the surviving badges actually cover greater distances, which increases the risk of them coming into contact with cattle and transmitting the disease. Eradicating bovine TB in one area may not be an effective method to eradicate the disease overall. By tracking badges, it's been found that they may increase their territory and range by up to as much as 61% after culling. It's also argued that badgers rarely come into contact with the cattle, preferring to keep their distance, and they avoid fields with grazing cattle. So this means that there may be little direct evidence that badgers regularly transmit bovine TB to cattle. I think it's quite clear that there's so much conflicting evidence over whether culling badgers effectively lowers transmission of bovine TB that even the UK government has admitted that decisions to expand culling are not based on strong evidence of the cull working. That was uh, taken from Woodruff's findings back in 2017. There are several other reasons why badger culling may not be quite the ideal solution. There are high costs associated with large-scale culling policies. Badger culling is no different and costs over £5 million a year. But each outbreak of bovine TB on a cattle farm costs the farmer around £14,000. There may also be ecological consequences to removing badgers such as an increase in other carnivores, including foxes. A more effective alternative to culling might be vaccination of badgers against bovine TB. It's less costly and it may mean fewer environmental impacts from changes in the badger population. The argument that cattle should also be vaccinated, as only 6% of infected cattle herds are thought to have contracted the disease due to being in contact with the badgers, is a contentious issue again. Such vaccinated animals are not suitable for human consumption. The government has pledged to gradually reduce badger culling in favour of focusing on improving vaccination schemes for badgers and cattle and better tracing, only culling in situations where absolutely necessary. The badger culling debate remains highly controversial because, well, quite frankly, whilst there is some evidence that it has led to a reduction in cases of bovine TB, there are still concerns over how effective culling actually is. Alternative solutions such as vaccines should be favoured for their more ethical approaches and for just quite simply the reduced impact on our precious wildlife. So let's talk about reason number three that I gave and the threat to human health. Well, the final reason for culling is when animals threaten the health of humans or their safety. The main example I'm going to discuss in this podcast is from the spread of the zoonotic diseases passing between animals and humans. For example, deer are culled in the US in areas where population numbers are high, not only to avoid car accidents where they basically, which they cause fairly frequently, as you can imagine, but it's also to reduce the risk of transmission of Lyme disease to humans. So one animal that has recently been culled to prevent a zoonotic disease transmission is the mink. There have been outbreaks of COVID-19 in mink fur farms in several European countries, and mink are able to catch and transmit coronavirus to humans. Between 15 and 17 million mink were killed at more than 1,000 farms after 12 people tested positive 
with a new strain of COVID-19 that originated in mink farms in North Denmark. A study of the workers at the farms found that over half had contracted this version of the mutated virus which was circulating in the mink populations. The mink are kept close together in the farm, so the virus, as you can imagine, spreads very quickly between them, leading to the conclusion that culling was the only way to limit the impact of the new coronavirus strain in any kind of meaningful way. The mink mutation is a particular concern, uh, well, as, as any mutations occurring as the virus is transmitted between hosts of different species may actually prevent a vaccine from working effectively, and that really would just set us back in the recovery from the pandemic that we've found ourselves in. There are economic concerns with culling so many mink. The cull has been estimated to cost around 800 million euros. And compensation may be given to the farmers affected, many of whom, well, quite frankly, depended on the mink farming industry for their actual livelihood. The large-scale mink cull is predicted to devastate this farming sector and it's likely to lead to just a permanent end to that whole industry in Denmark. The COVID-19 situation has given anti-fur campaigners an opportunity to push for the banning of mink farming. With the risks to human health from the COVID-19 pandemic, there is no feasible option other than to close the fur farms and carry out a decisive cull. So, how can we conclude this podcast? Well, the various case studies have shown how difficult it can be to make informed decisions around culling. In the case where a direct risk to human health was clearly demonstrated, culling the mink was the right course of action to prevent transmission of COVID-19. In the case of cattle with foot and mouth disease, culling was acceptable as the situation meant that there was not enough time to implement another solution before the disease spiralled totally out of control. The priority should always be to avoid death of more animals than necessary, but as a response to a threat to human health, culling is justified where there is no other feasible option. The evidence shows that, more often than not, killing animals in the name of public health or ecological well-being backfires and does lead to unintended consequences. While there are some arguments in favour of culling badgers with the threat they pose to livestock health, there is no decisive evidence that this is beneficial and that the ethical and economic considerations may actually outweigh the benefits of a culling programme. Where wild animals such as dingoes or wild cats are culled, this should always be done with caution as ecosystems are extremely complex and delicate and culling a species may lead to a chain of, again, unintended consequences. Culling, therefore, should only occur where there is a direct and severe impact on human or livestock health and only when there is proven causation and alternatives such as vaccination or contraceptive programmes are just not possible. In a world where species are often culled as a first resort and culling is seen as the, I guess you could argue, the easy solution to a problem, it's vital that culling policies are evidence-based to ensure that they're both necessary and they minimise, crucially, the number of animals killed whilst maximising the benefits. We shouldn't cull animals unnecessarily for fear of causing more damage to the environment. 
neither should we hold off on culling, where to do so means fewer lives can actually be saved. I think there's plenty to think about in this particular podcast there. If you've got any questions, get in touch at kytosbology at gmail.com. I'd like to just close uh, by thanking Alice again for her work and research on this particular topic. And thank you everyone for listening. Until next time.